I'm Catherine Spearing, and this is Uncertain. For this episode, I'm delighted to host Kim Cavill of the extremely popular Six Minute Sex Ed podcast and the TN Intimacy website. Kim is a sex educator who creates content for adults and kids to listen to together. What I love about Kim is she is an expert at destigmatizing, degrossifying, and de-weirdifying sex. Her stuff is great for parents who want to talk to their kids about sex and sexuality. It's also fantastic for those of us who grew up in purity culture. Now, for those of you unfamiliar with purity culture, it's a movement that elevates virginity before marriage almost to the point where it's the height of purity. And to lose your virginity is the ultimate transgression. Many of us who grew up in this are navigating complex trauma as adults. And this dramatically affects our relationships with ourselves and others. What frequently resulted from this movement was a host of people who either broke all the rules, but did it in secret, shrouded in shame, and couldn't ask for help or ask questions. Or it led to people completely suppressing this side of their humanity. Often those in purity culture were told, if you wait until marriage to have sex, you're going to have an amazing sex life. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a lie. In fact, many of the people who grew up in purity culture have a lot of trauma to work through in their marriages. Consider this episode the sex education you never got. Tune in next week for another conversation with a sex therapist about sex and sexuality. Check out the Uncertain Podcast Instagram or tearsofeden.org and the show notes for more resources on sex, sexuality, and purity culture. Thanks so much for joining me today. Here is Kim Cavill. Yay! <laughs> Kim, I'm so excited. I'm really so excited am. to talk to you too. Oh my gosh. I literally, I am so stoked to talk to you. I found your podcast. I can't even remember how I found it, but I literally listened to 20 episodes <laughs> in like one day. I was I'm just so, like, what? that's one. so nice. I, I'm so <laughs> glad that you found it. And I appreciate that. Thank you. You're very kind. Yeah. It was very like, you're just so, you're so gracious. <laughs> and so like destigmatizing, degrossifying <laughs> this thing that we don't ever want to talk about. And with my work addressing difficult subjects related to the church. Oh my gosh, mm. this is not talked about and no. not addressed. I would really love to hear from you because you did mention, I think on one of the episodes, like coming from mm-hmm. a fundamentalist background. I would love to hear about that if you... Sure. My background with religion and throughout my adolescence is kind of a, a strange one because it didn't really start out in a fundamentalist kind of expression of Christianity. I was baptized as an infant in the Lutheran church. And that's where, you know, my family attended all throughout my childhood. And when my parents divorced, when I was around like eight or nine, so this this would have been in the late 80s. At that point, the church community actively rejected my mother because of that divorce and not my father, who 
was to be honest with you, his alcoholism was the catalyst for the divorce. It was a necessary divorce. But my mother was blamed for that. And I remember that rejection very, very clearly and how badly it hurt my mother. And so, you know, that was the first kind of crack in the foundation that I'd been given as a birthright. And when my mother remarried within the next couple of years, the person she remarried who became my stepfather had been, he was Pentecostal, but he had a very strange relationship with the church. I mean, it was, he was a strange person. And so we ended up hop skipping around all sorts of different denominations from the time that I was 10 through the time that I left for college. And then we'd maybe stay there a year, year and a half or two. And then my stepfather would have some serious problem with the leadership of the church. And then we'd have to leave and we'd have to find a new church home. So we'd try a completely different denomination. And so, you know, by the time I left for college, I'd been baptized twice because, you know, every time, the, the second time I was baptized was, of course, because the first time just didn't count. And the second time I was baptized, I was dunked in a tank at an at a independent fundamentalist church in the middle of nowhere. So, you know, as we hop skip around churches, they got more and more fundamentalist rather than mainstream Protestant Christianity. And so by the time I left for college, I had a very, very angry relationship with God. I mean, I, I, I yelled at God a lot of the time in my room as a teenager for a lot of different reasons beyond the normal teenager religions about why you want to yell at literally everyone. And so when I went to college and I was on my own, I kind of put that aside for my freshman year. I put most things that I knew aside for my freshman year, had a terrible freshman year, emotionally speaking, and then found myself kind of in the wilderness, really, emotionally. I was lost. I didn't really know who I was. I was dealing with the after effects of a lot of trauma related to my upbringing. And so I went back to the thing that I knew, which was to find a church met a friend in college my sophomore year and, you know, started to get involved in the youth ministry there. And I felt really comfortable, probably because I was choosing to go on myself and I wasn't forced. But then once I'd been going for about six months, the leadership again said that my previous baptisms didn't count. I needed to be baptized again all the other other things. And then there was, I realized that there was a definite strain in the church of homophobia. They were actively trying to suppress, you know, any same sex attraction within the group that I was a part of. And I just remember I reached this point and I looked at it and I said, you know, I've never found God with these sorts of people. I've never found God within God's house, what people keep telling me is God's house, and I'm going to stop looking for him there. And so that was really a turning point for me. And I'm now, about 20 years later, I guess, a member of the Unitarian Universalist Church. And I'm a very happy, happy, happy member of that church. And I finally found a place where I feel like all the adults around me as a child kept telling me that God, you know, that, that God was here and this is what I was, was supposed to feel like. I finally found a church that feels like all the things that church has supposed to have been feeling like for my whole life. So uh, that's kind of my brief history. <laughs> right. 
Wow. <laughs> with religion. Thank you so much for sharing so that. So I like to say like the briefest version of that is that I've been baptized three times and unfortunately holy water rolls off my skin like I'm coated with Teflon. <laughs> And that's the best way to put it. Just it just doesn't up. stick for some reason. Yes, never stuck. Never stuck. Oh my gosh. No, I think you just did like a, a great description of I think what so many people experience in the church. And I'm someone like I've been to seminary. I love the church. I care about the church. And then when I see it doing these things and like harming people. And doing it in the name of God, it enrages me. I mean, and it's happened to me too. And I'm I'm just, oh, thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah. Did you, in that experience, that affect why you wanted to do sex education? Was that Absolutely. Part of it? Um, most people that end up doing sex education kind of fall into this work. There's not like a one true path, you know, here in the United States anyway, and we don't really even have much of an official licensure program. And so I'm always love to hear about the way people find, you know, find themselves in this work. It's always a very interesting road. And I originally started out as a middle and high school English teacher. I love teaching. Absolutely love working with young people. And through my undergraduate education, I worked as a disability care assistant, and I really, really loved working with people with disabilities. And so I did a postgraduate certification when I was living in Australia in disability studies. I really loved that work, and I trained under some really, really experienced health educators, and I did so much research, discovered a love of reading journals and data and sexuality studies, and developed a lot of sex ed programs, and then start of working, working in this space. And so because I had a natural inclination to be good at it, and I think because of my background, I have a lot of, I mean, people who have trauma in their background oftentimes come out of that experience with a really deep sort of empathy, which helps when you're talking to people about this subject area. And I'm a good communicator. And I really believe in the value of the content. I really believe that you know, this kind of information that's under this, what is a very big umbrella of sex education isn't just a necessity, like all information, but it's a, it's a human right. It's, it's integral to a person's identity, expressions of personhood, and ability to, you know, pursue, pursue happiness. And so I felt, that's how I fell into the work and found my calling. And whenever money has been available in the United States, which Money for sex education only really exists depending on who's president, unfortunately. That's been the case since the Reagan administration. Whenever there's been money available, I have been involved in delivering that content to you know, all sorts of different audiences. If you're going to put a Vegas bet on whether or not your average young person in the States will or will not have sex education, the safer bet is to say that they will not. And even if that young person happens to get something that's called quote unquote sex education, most of the time it's going to be, again, the law of averages, statistical probability in the United States, that education is either going to be purely hyper-focused on STIs, sexually transmitted infections. It is going to be medically inaccurate, some combination of both, or it is going to be like abstinence only, deliberate misinformation. And so you know, if you're, if 
if we're saying that we want all young people in the United States to have access to comprehensive, medically accurate sex education, if you're going to put a bet in Vegas on whether or not that that's the case for your average young person, that's definitely not the case. Why is it that some communities want people to be ignorant about sex? I think that, first of all, we have this, this dynamic is written into uh, the United States from the beginning. You have to remember who came, you know, which people, which Europeans came over here to colonize the United States. And remember the, the Puritans, especially, they left England because the king at the time wouldn't allow them to impose their religious expression, their idea of the correct way to be Christian upon the English church. They wouldn't allow them. And so there was a lot of tension there. And eventually the Puritans said, you know, like we either have to choose between abiding by the laws of the king, which we disagree with, or we have to leave and find a place where we can do this unfettered. And that's what they did. They chose to leave. They chose to come to the United States. And if you look at our history, much of which we're ignorant about in this country, they set about doing that from, from the moment they settled here. They, they started imposing their religious expression, not just on their own communities of settlers, but as part of the colonization you know, that they imposed upon Native and Indigenous people. So a lot of us are ignorant about the fact that there's been that dynamic. And the Puritans were preoccupied with expressions of sexuality. That was part of their expression of Christianity. So that dynamic has existed in the, in the United States from the beginning. And it's just evolved over time. And so the tension that we're dealing with now existed before we were even founded, really, from the very beginning when white people set put on these shores. So that's one of the reasons I believe. And another reason is that a lot of us don't have access to resources or space as adults to heal from our own trauma. You know, a lot of us don't have access to mental health services. We don't have the, the community resources to, you know, heal ourselves from you know, damage that we're carrying around in our past, much of which came, I mean, you have to only look at the statistics to see how common an experience, some, some kind of sexual trauma is for your average person in the United States. And rather than making resources available for justice or for healing, I believe a lot of us from a lack of options kind of carry that around inside and then inadvertently and subconsciously perpetuate that onto our younger people because we don't know any different. And so it's not so much that there are communities of people who want their young people to be ignorant. That's not the emotional impulse, I believe, behind that. That's an emotional impulse from a lack of options. And it makes a lot of sense if you're coming at this from a trauma-informed perspective. Like, I have a lot of pain and suffering around these subjects. And so I am going to protect my child as much and as long as I can from what, will, what feels to me like will be inevitably painful and hurtful experience. And that impulse to protect your young person is one of the most powerful impulses a, a parent or a caring adult has. It gets really complicated in that way. It's kind of out of a misdirected need to protect when unfortunately that ignorance functionally performs the opposite function. It makes a person more vulnerable, even though from a, a parent's point of view, 
that's not how it feels at the time. That's not the emotional impulse behind the decision. How much do you know about purity culture? I know, you know, I experienced some of that. I remember like, you know, with the jars of clean DC talk, DC talk had a, you know, that Christian group. I mean, one of their biggest hits was all about waiting until marriage that was, and you know, promise rings and, and the whole bit. Luckily my stepfather at the time didn't like me enough to make me go to a purity ball. (laughs) Didn't give you a purity ring. Yeah. So I was on the fringes of that in terms of actual personal experience, but I know a lot of other people who were subject to a lot of those kinds of practices. Um, If you're going to take a crack at it, what do you think is the reasoning behind why that culture is so intent on people being ignorant? I think it's a way that we view young people, particularly female identifying young people and women. And so who are viewed as property rather than people in, in that way. So it's like sexuality, a person's sexuality, a, a 15 year old you know, girl's sexuality is something that her father owns until he can pass the deed off in marriage to a spouse who then owns that person. We have to remember that if we're talking about a long view of humanity, as long as there have been, you know, humans on this planet, we have way more time and experience collectively that marriage has been exactly that kind of transaction, one of property and economics rather than one that has anything to do with individual happiness or fulfillment or romantic love is the way that we understand it. Those are largely very modern notions and they're very, very recent if we take a long view of humanity, even though, you know, human beings individually, we're not very good at realizing that in our own day-to-day experience. And so there's a strong history there between, you know, behind the idea of a young woman's sexuality being something that is owned by a proprietor and then passed along And so the idea of keeping that sort of property pure makes a lot of sense when what you're talking about is property and not a person, you know, and that's why it's so dehumanizing. And so when you, when you talk to adult women and young people who've come out of that experience, you know, it's not just something that, that most young people say like, oh yeah, wasn't that funny when I had to go to that purity ball? I'm like, there's not laughter around it. It's not funny. It's an ongoing, usually traumatic experience that a person has to do a lot of wrestling with in, as an adult because the process of going through that was so dehumanizing in the first part. But, you know, when you, when you actively reject it as an adult, now you're confronted Uh, with this whole different view of yourself and you've never really been given the opportunity to figure out who you are. So it's kind of like that experience that I had my freshman year college when I was on my own for the first time. And I realized I didn't know who I was. I didn't know what I liked or what I thought was important. No one had ever asked me before. I never thought that I could have answers to those questions myself. You know, it's a lot. It's a very intense experience to try and heal from after you've gone through it. For sure. I'm going a little bit off uh, off script here, but mm-hmm. I am curious what you'd say about this. I'm definitely exploring purity culture as spiritual abuse, mm-hmm. using God in the Bible as a way of inflicting shame and harm definitely falls in that category without a doubt. 
I was actually introduced to some material recently that actually puts purity culture in the sexual abuse category. Mm -hmm. And so I was, I'm curious what you would say about that. I mean, I, I don't, I think that it's, it's certainly possible. I think that there's two ways to answer that question. The first is systemically. I think there are certainly some communities where that could be the case. You know, when, when we're talking about ritualistic child marriage, you know, that, that would be ritual systemic child abuse, you know, for example, and other cases, maybe where that's not routinely enforced, it might be more of a, a spiritual abuse issue. But at the same time, I think all of this boils down to when we're talking about it from an individual point of view, being a survivor myself, I think it's really, really, really important to let survivors own their own story. And that means they get to decide whether or not to share, of course, their story with other people. And they also get to decide how to label that story. And so, for example, when I'm in classrooms, teaching, you can't keep trauma out. We all carry it around so much and there's a lot to go around. So it inevitably comes up. But I think it's, I always resist the impulse to tell somebody else what their experience was in the past because it wasn't my experience and that's not my job. And when your experience was one of victimization of any kind, when power was taken away from you, as part of the healing process, it's really important to feel like you're 100% in control of your story as an adult. And that includes the ability to label it. So if a person who has, you know, some people, if a person has experienced like forced marriage as a child, and then for whatever reason insisted, like that's not that I wasn't sexually abused, I was emotionally abused. I'm not going to argue with that person because it's their experience and they get, they, they own a hundred percent of it. So I think from a systemic point of view, it's absolutely a possibility because there are systemic structures set up for child abuse. Absolutely. But from an individual's point of view, it's up to that individual, I believe, to own, own their narrative of their experience. Got it. No, no, I appreciate that. Thank you. Here's a, here's a fun one. When is a good age to begin learning about sex? So this answer on the surface of it, if someone just listens to my answer and then turns off the podcast, I would sound absolutely wild, but I want you to keep listening because it's from, from the beginning. And that's because remember, remember what I said, sex, sex education is actually a really big umbrella. And here in the United States, one of, one of the biggest problems that we have is that what we would talk about is sex or even sex ed is narrowly focused, very, way too narrowly fo focused to be accurate. When sex, education, sexuality is much, much bigger and encompasses a lot more subject area than, than just our narrow American focus on what constitutes sex and sex ed. So I'm going to say from the beginning. And from the very beginning means that you know, I'll just share my own personal experience as, a, as an illustration. So when I became a parent and I brought my babies home from the hospital, especially because of my background. I don't talk about my background as a sex educator. I mean, my background, you know, in, with trauma and the way I grew up from the beginning when I was changing my child's diaper, my infant's diaper, I narrated talking about 
body parts, which is just the, the very basics from the beginning, knowing that my three month old, you know, wasn't understanding me, was enjoying the sound of my voice, but wasn't understanding me because I was really teaching myself and setting myself up for later success when my child is old enough to understand what I'm saying. And because I've been saying the word penis or testicles for so long, it's going to sound in exactly the same tone of voice that I would say elbow or knee. And that means no stigma, no shame. And so I've given myself the space to work through my own adult trauma, which is remember what I keep talking about, like our own complicated baggage as adults that we really don't want to perpetuate on our children. That's what I'm doing from the beginning. So uh, from the very beginning, knowing that the beginning part, if you're really starting from the beginning of a child's life, is training yourself and educating yourself so that you feel more confident and prepared to be honest and shame-free as your child grows, grows up. And so once a child gets old enough to communicate with you, you know, the, the basic building blocks are you want to give the, the anatomical, the medic, medically accurate names for body parts, no nicknames, no things like front bottom, which is my least favorite for the vagina. <laughs> really can't stand that one. Oh, that's odd. Yeah, but like no nicknames. You want to use medically accurate terms. You want to be able to say them in a way that's not embarrassing or not, you're not shaming in any way. You move from there, especially when a child's ready to potty train is a great opportunity to start talking about the concepts of public and private and set up the expectation that even very young children are separate autonomous beings and they own their bodies. Even though they need guidance in regulating their bodies, they still own their bodies. You don't as their parent, they're not property, they're people. And you start setting them up for success about like, I can expect adults to interact with my body in particular ways that are respectful, how to recognize disrespectful behavior, how to talk about it. So that's feeling safe and unsafe, encouraging curiosity and questions. If you have a shy child or one who isn't naturally curious, creating opportunities to start conversations yourself. So maybe picking up a book about body parts at the library and then choosing to read that with your child if they haven't asked any questions by the age where it's appropriate, you know, around preschool age. And then just continuing that kind of open, honest, shame-free attitude as your child grows up and gets older and is more able to understand. And then ideally, when you're talking about school-age children, you also want to make sure that aside from the conversations that you're having with your child at home, you also want to make sure that they have a network of supportive adults around them, not just yourself as a parent or a caring adult, that there are multiple people around them because they're not always going to feel comfortable talking to you as their parent. And you want to make sure that they have the same kind of respectful, empowering relationships with other trusted adults in their life. And so being really explicit with aunties, uncles, grandmas, grandpas, close friends of the family, a pastor, if there is one that you feel really good, good with and safe with your child with, and you know, maybe a teacher or a social worker at the school, there's lots of good adults around in the community. And you want to make sure that your child is aware that they don't just have you as a support person, that they have a network of trusted adults that they can turn to should they need assistance in this way. I love that. You're, you're training yourself as the parent to not treat body parts or sexuality as icky and weird. Mm -hmm. And so you're 
using that tone when you're speaking to your children and then you're also exposing them to other healthy people, not limiting them to yourself. I definitely remember that in the in the the fundamentalist world. Like you're only supposed to talk to your parents about this. Like yeah. don't talk to anyone else. This is just for your parents. Like don't even talk to siblings, which made it shaming. It it, it made it this scary, you know, thing that we can't talk about with anyone. So I love that. That's beautiful. I love it. That's right. And that becomes, you set that up in this elementary and the school, middle school years, especially because it becomes incredibly important in the teen years. Because remember, part of the natural development for a teenager is to not want to talk to their parents. And even though it's hurtful to be a parent on the end of that, it is natural and it's it is part of a healthy process of separation, but that's also really hard. And they need to know that there are other adults in their life that they have your implicit permission to turn to when they need support. And you're just, you're too close. You're not the right person that they can turn to at that moment. It makes teenagers so much safer to have a network, a couple of trusted adults around them just to, than, than to ask them to rely on, you know, one parent or two parents at home. Yeah, I definitely completely resonate with that as a former youth director. I feel like that's that's a huge part of their development and making making the world their own. What are Oh, okay. This is what I'm really excited to ask <laughs> you about because you've definitely answered this on your podcast, but I want to talk about this a little more. The difference between abstinence and virginity and why that difference is important. You just asked me one of my very favorite things to talk about. This is one of my very (laughs) favorite things to talk about. I think this is really, really important because remember, remember how I said in the United States, especially culturally speaking, we have a really narrow definition of sex and what constitutes sex education. And this is one of the very problematic things that like ideas that comes out of that very, very narrow focus. So abstinence and virginity are, are very different things. And abstinence isn't subjective. You know, we, we know what there is a medical definition of sexual abstinence. And abstinence is not having oral, anal, or vaginal sex or genital skin-to-skin contact. And it's that definition because those are the forms of contact that have the possibility of either pregnancy or STI transmission. And so medically speaking, not engaging in any of those behaviors is sexual abstinence. Now, virginity, people think on the surface that we all, we all know what virginity means and it all means the same thing to everybody like gravity. Like we all know what gravity is. And it means, although in this day and age, maybe you can't be sure of that anymore, (laughs) you know, but at (laughs) least in the past, we generally had an agreement on what gravity is. (laughs) And you could say the same about virginity, but that's never been the case and it's not the case. And so when this comes up in like classes of sophomores, it's one of my favorite things to do is to say, okay, so, and I always use myself as an example. So it's like, okay, so let's say that I've never had vaginal sex before, but I do regularly engage in oral sex. Raise your hand if I'm still a virgin. And most people's hands go up, 
those people's hands. And they're like, yeah, you're still a virgin. And they say, okay, so I've never had vaginal sex before, but I do regularly engage in oral and anal sex. Am I still a virgin? 50% of the hands will go up. And then that means 50% stay down. So we're obviously not in agreement, you know, and those are just the tips of what constitutes sexual behavior. The actual sexual behavior of humanity is very, very complicated and infinitely lovely in its diversity. So, and that's just at the beginning, and we already don't agree. So virginity has this kind of surface level connotation that we're all on the same page, but we're not because it's a subjective concept. Some people say it's a, like a societal construct that's more related to the purity kind of culture idea that we were talking about before. Virginity is virtually meaningless in a, in a group kind of context. On an individual level, it can be a really meaningful conversation for some people, there was one person that I spoke to that described the process of losing his virginity as something like rather than losing it at once, it eroded over time, like a rock in the wind. <laughs> it was my very favorite way I've ever heard it. That's my very favorite way someone's ever described the notion of virginity because it speaks to its subjectiveness. So virginity can be an individually meaningful concept, but from my point of view as an educator, it's, it's meaningless. I can't assume that, that we all we're all on the same page when we're talking about it. And besides, you know, virginity as a concept, it's like something you have it. And then once it's gone, it's gone forever, you know, and you, you can't ever get it back. And that's just not like, that's, that's not how sex works. Abstinence, on the other hand, is a choice that anybody can make at any time in life for any sort of reason. And it's a much more accurate and welcoming and, and destigmatizing conversation to have and, and uh, subject to focus on because, for example, some people, you know, after they give birth, for example, undergo like a six month period of abstinence because it's just not comfortable to have sex at that point. That person's choosing to be abstinent. And so it takes all of the, the emotional baggage out of the concept. And it also, it's important from a health, you know, health provider's point of view. So when you're really talking about STI transmission, unplanned pregnancy, et cetera, it's much more accurate to talk about abstinence. Which behaviors do you choose to abstain from and why? And so it's much more seamless to talk about that from the point of view of abstinence as a choice versus virginity as a thing that you have that you have to protect at all costs. This gift. You lose it, it's gone and you can never go back, right? <laughs> and you right. know, I mean, from a parent's point of view, for parents who are very resistant to this, I mean, to be very, very frank with you, even if, and like, just be stereotypical, it's always a daughter. Even if your daughter is abstinent, like no oral anal sex or genital skin to skin contact, vaginal sex, you know, until they're married, if they perform abstinence and perform virginity perfectly, it still only works as a health strategy, particularly for SDIs, if the person they're marrying did exactly the same thing. And so again, if we're going back to that Vegas bet, I wouldn't put money on that. I just wouldn't. I think you're going to lose your money. Statistically speaking, that's a very, very risky bet because people are getting married later and later in life, you know, and that's just not how people generally work. And so, you know, once I point that out, then, then parents understand the importance of, we have to have these conversations, even if our, our child is very committed. Is making those choices, yeah. Yeah, to abstinence. 
Hmm. No, that's so important. So important. It's not, it's not yielding the battle if you educate <laughs> your children. I'm wondering, so say a woman or a man chooses to be abstinent until they get married. What are some ways that they can prepare to have a healthy sex life in that they aren't necessarily practicing before marriage? So they can get to know themselves. They can get to know themselves sexually. And so, you know, masturbation is a really helpful tool. Like it, it really is. Now, not everybody is comfortable with that. There are some religious expressions that say, no, that's, that, that behavior is not allowed. That's an individual choice to make. I don't subscribe to that idea. Masturbation is a really, really helpful way to get to know your own body and your own preferences. And that is very empowering to take into any sexual relationship, you know, including marriage. There are other ways, however, to do that too. So there's lots of material that you can read if you're not comfortable touching yourself or if you subscribe to a religion that forbids you from touching yourself and that's something that you are also choosing to go along with. There are lots of books and things that you can read to help you learn about different sexual expressions. And I mean, I'm not just talking about romance novels, although romance novels can be honestly very, they're popular for a reason. There's <laughs> lots of great books now that are, have open views of sexuality and sex positivity. So you can read a lot of information. Be careful when you read online, and that's true of any kind of content area. You want to make sure that you're getting reputable information from objective sources and not someone with an agenda who's trying to have you somehow make them some money or give them a lot of attention, which then makes them money. So check your sources, but you can do, you can find some good communities of people online too. There's a really healthy community of sex positive sex educators on Instagram. That's really helpful. Many who specialize in working with people who are growing out of purity culture and now want to develop a healthy, healthy sexuality. So there's good resources out there. Uh, you can also do, again, remember like, that narrow focus of sexuality in the United States, if you choose not to engage in masturbation, you can still do a lot of very sensual things with yourself. Things like taking a hot bath and then touching yourself, maybe not on your erogenous zones, but touching yourself on your skin all over and figure out how do I generally like to be touched, which areas of my body are responsive, in what ways, and develop a comfort level with yourself and then also a language that you're comfortable using with your partner. Because even if you choose to be abstinent until marriage and you, know, you, you, you wanna get to know yourself and you can go into that with a lot of confidence about how your body works, you still need to be able to communicate with your partner about how their body works and how you want them to interact with your body. So you need to have a certain comfort level with language as well. And um, there are good resources online to teach you how to do that. I really like yes, no, maybe lists. So you can Google yes, no, maybe lists. You can also, there's sometimes red, yellow, and green light, like traffic light lists. They go under both names. Some are incredibly encompassing. So like incredibly broad that you'll find online. I mean, they can include all sorts of very typical BDSM behaviors like spanking. Are you comfortable with canes? Like the sort of stuff that Fifty Shades of Grey really tried and then failed to illustrate. There are also more, there are also lists that are much more basic or vanilla, which wouldn't, you know, encompass any of the BDSM or more the kink behaviors that we talk about, but just like, are you comfortable with missionary position? How, you know, do you want foreplay? Yes or no? Are there any 
places on your body that you don't like touching or you don't want to be touched. And I think that going through a list like that yourself, your partner going through a list like that and checking off yes, no, maybe, because you're really talking about boundaries and communication and then being able to have a short conversation about how those two things work together is a really, really good way to set up an open, fun, positive, and creative sexual relationship with your partner. And you can have that conversation before you get married. And you can be talking about those things. And that's super even. sexy too. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is very, very sexy. It is very sexy to be able to have that conversation. There's a, And then, you know, you go through these lists and you have these conversations and holy hell, there's a lot to be excited about on your wedding night where before there might have just been this really awkward silence. And if you give- Fear. That's fair. Right. Yeah. All fear needs is a big empty room to be quiet in and then it'll get a lot bigger. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. No, that's great. I love that. Just for my own personal information, how accurate is Fifty Shades of Grey? So Fifty Shades of Grey, Fifty Shades of Grey attempts to show how important it is for people in a in a BDSM relationship. So you know, bondage, uh, masochism, uh, sadomasochism, you know, there's, there's a couple of different definitions of behaviors that fall under that acronym, but it, it does attempt to show with the contract kind of scene, like how important it is to be able to communicate limits to set up those relationships for success, but it doesn't do it very well. And so, you know, people in the BDSM community get really annoyed with like, for example, the use of plastic zip ties, which no one in that community would ever actually use as binds for a person, for a submissive. No, no one would ever do that because they're, they're painful. There's a lot of other restraints that do the job without actually being dramatically painful for the person. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the details are inaccurate and the implication that Christian Gray only participates in this behavior because he's acting out past trauma with his mom plays into a really problematic stereotype. Mm. You know, we're, we all, like I said, trauma is very common. It's the common experience in the United States to have some level of trauma. So it's not to say that someone with trauma can't experience healing through a BDSM relationship. That's possible, but that's not every person in a BDSM relationship is not in that relationship because they're traumatized. You know, that that's just not the case. And so I know that that's an extremely sore sticking point for people who are in the BDSM community that get really put out about, you know, they get tired of that stereotype. Because it's it's stereotypes. Yeah. And it's stigmatizing. You would only do this if you were traumatized. That's right. And that's just not the case. It's not the case at all. That's so fascinating. Didn't know I was going to ask that question. But yeah, final question is if someone stayed abstinent and then got married and realized they were maybe same-sex attracted or Mm. asexual, if someone does find themselves in that situation and they're already married. It's a really good question. And it's an important one because it goes back to what sexuality really is. And again, broadening that really narrow focus that we have in this country, like the, the triad model of sexuality is to say that sexuality is a relationship between three really important factors, a person's identity, how they identify, and a person's um, behavior 
how they, you know, how they choose to behave, the choices they make, and their orientation, what, how they orient sexually, how they orient in a relationship, romantically speaking. Now, that's, there's another model of sexuality that has those three factors, plus an additional, you know, fourth, which is biology. I don't like that because to me, um, in the triad model of sexuality, the biology is implicit because every human fits into that triangle. And so like, if you're human, then your biology says that you're somewhere in here. And so some people, if you think about sexuality being a relationship between these three factors and imagine a triangle, I like to imagine the Triforce from Legend of Zelda. So if you imagine <laughs> a triangle, some people's sexuality is fairly static over time, meaning their orientation, their identity, and their behavior line up in the way that people would commonly expect. So we'll take like um, a person who identifies as a straight man, who chooses to, his behavior is that he has sex with straight women, and his orientation is that he is straight. So, you know, these things line up in the stereotypical pattern. And then they don't change over time. So he never experiences same-sex attraction. He never has a same-sex experience, etc. And so it's a static kind of expression of sexuality. Some people experience a more fluid version of sexuality where one, two, or all three of those factors shift over time. Okay, and that is much more common for women and female identifying people than it is for men and male identifying people. It is actually a, a fairly common experience for someone like a woman who is, identifies as a woman, is, identifies as straight, has only opposite sex, same, you know, straight partners, and then later in life starts to experience same-sex attraction. And then maybe for whatever reason, the relationship that they're in that was straight, you know, ends up in divorce. And then that person dates, dates a, a woman, you know, so that's not um, an uncommon experience. It's actually fairly common. And so some people have a more fluid kind of sexuality. Some people have a more static sexuality over their lifetime and it is more common for some kind of fluidity than it is for a lifelong kind of stability and sexuality. Okay. So it's just important to keep that in mind, again, broadening that focus of, of what we think about when we naturally talk about sex. So it is really important to know what to do, you know, or to have some resources available to you if you're in a relationship and then you start to experience one, two, or all three of those factors shift over time. And this is where I would advocate for, again, it's not just children that need a network of supported, trusted adults. Every person needs that. Every, that's a human need. It's not a child's need. It's an adult need too. So you need a support network around you. Hopefully, if you're in that situation, in your relationship, you have an open and respectful and trusting communication relationship with your partner where you can talk about these sorts of things. Hopefully, you have access to resources that will help your mental health. So whether that's a therapist, whether that's healthcare, whether that's pastoral care that you feel really trusted and validated in, and whether that's, you know, chosen family. So you've got really good friends who are able to talk with you through that. You need to be able to lean on a support network if you're starting to experience uh, flux in what has previously for you been a very static expression of sexuality. And I also think it's important for people to know that what you're experiencing is actually quote unquote normal. I don't like that word when it comes to sexuality, but here we'll replace I, with my other word that I do like. It is typical. typical. It is typical what is happening to you. You are not alone. It is not uncommon. 
It is part of the human experience and it is typical. So don't, don't stigmatize yourself because you're, you're just, you're part of the human race and you're doing exactly what humans have done since the very beginning. We just don't, we're not very good at talking about it is all. So lean on your support network. Hopefully you have an, if you have, if you're partnered, hopefully you have the kind of relationship with your partner that can withstand growth, you know, and can make room for changes, which is what everybody's goal should be when we're talking about relationships. And then hopefully you give grace to yourself and recognize that you're just part of the, you're part of the human race. Human beings have changed from the beginning and change is really only the constant thing. Nothing lasts forever. And the key to peace and happiness is finding a way to be happy in the storm of, of chaos. Yeah, that's awesome. This has been delightful. Oh my gosh. It's been wonderful talking to you too. I'm so glad that we could finally connect. <laughs> oh, me too. I'm so, I'm so passionate about this. And so I'm so grateful to have your expertise to be able to share. My pleasure. Did you have any final, final thoughts? I think so for parenting people or caring adults who have a relationship with children, a mentoring relationship with children, my other piece of advice would be model, model making mistakes. Mm -hmm. And so instead of doing all the prep work to try and go in to have a conversation about whatever subject you feel the need to talk about, condoms, virginity, marriage, birth control, whatever it is, sure, do, do the work that you need to to feel confident, but take the pressure off yourself in trying to be perfect because perfect isn't the point. So if you sit and you have that conversation and it doesn't go the way you thought it was going to go, instead of beating yourself up about that and then letting it be a discouraging thing for you, try to reframe it as an opportunity to model how you handle making a mistake and how you communicate with somebody. So you can always come back and say, you know, I really wanted that conversation to go well. It didn't go well. Can we try this again? And then have the confidence to laugh at yourself because you're modeling what your child should expect from a partner in their future, which isn't a series of perfect conversations. It is a respectful way of communicating that encourages intimacy and trust. That's what you're mm -hmm. trying to model. So we're just, just remember for those type A parents out there of which I am one, <laughs> you're not, the point is not an A plus at the end, you're not getting graded for this. That's not the point. The point is not to do it perfectly. The point is to model for your child how they should expect to be treated by people in the future. Wow. Oh my <laughs> gosh. This is so great. I don't know how I'm going to edit it because it's all awesome. <laughs> well, thanks so it's much. I, no, I really appreciate it. It was great talking to you and then we'll great. keep in touch for sure. Yes, okay? please. Yes. Okay. Thank you. Thank that you so good. much. Thanks for joining me today. I'll see you next time.